I am very pleased to welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Sakabi uh, Wilson, Sakabi Wilson, Director Center um, for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice and Health, uh, Associate Professor at the Maryland Institute for Applied Environmental Health. Dr. Wilson is an Associate Professor with the Maryland Institute for Applied Environmental Health and Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Maryland College Park School of Public Health where he directs the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health. Dr. Wilson has over 20 years of experience as environmental health scientist in the areas of exposure science, environmental justice, environmental health disparities, community-based participatory research, water quality analysis, air pollution studies, built environment, industrial animal production, climate change, community resilience, and sustainability. He works primar primarily in partnership with community-based organizations to study and address environmental justice and health issues and translate research to action. We begin our platform with music from Leon Friends. Yeah. 
Thanks for having me today. I'm really excited to present about environmental justice and community engagement. So let me just jump into it uh, on this Sunday. What is environmental justice? First, before I talk about environmental justice, we have to talk about why we have environmental injustice. You know, when we think about environmental justice, one of the major drivers of it is, is racism. Racism in America today is, a, is an important issue. Racism is baked into the walls of a lot of our policies. Uh, racism America is America's apple pie. You have to talk about racism in the history of this country, the stolen bodies of Africans used to build this country, and then the stolen lands of our indigenous brothers and sisters, where we, we know we built built what is what is today America, right? Right now I'm on the lens of the Scataway people, but we have to we can't talk about where we are as a country without talking about two of those issues, right? With slavery and what we did to indigenous peoples. And so environmental justice as a movement is a social movement that's fighting against uh, structural racism, environmental racism. It's about what we live, what we work, what we play, what we pray, what we learn. Let me say that a little bit slow for y'all. What we live, what we work, what we play, what we pray, what we learn. Environmental justice movement is a social justice movement. It's the child of the civil rights movement. This year is actually the 40th anniversary of the Warren County Polychlorine Bafino uh, PCB landfill fight in, in uh, North Carolina. And that's where folks fought against a uh, landfill, unlined landfill for being built in um, this primarily black, rural, low-income community that had limited power, right? That'll be in, uh, I believe, September of this year. And that was one of the national events that brought environmental justice uh, to the forefront. And the movement really started in the church. The, the, you know, again, I said the environmental justice movement is a child of the civil rights movement. So I always like to talk about Dr. King has been the grandfather of the environmental justice movement. Y'all remember 52 years ago, uh, this past April, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. And what was he doing in Memphis? He was working with men who were being treated less than human, right? Men were carrying around signs that I am a man. They were saying, recognize my humanity. They were, they were dealing with labor issues as sanitation workers were dealing with labor issues. They were walking around with waste on them, right? So it was the intersection of, of environmental issues, health issues, labor issues. So really, to me, the beginnings of the environmental justice movement started with Dr. King's work, right? The beginnings of the environmental justice movement uh, actually go before Dr. King's work, even thinking about abolition, right? Uh, you know, and as I said before, this history of this country. So you, you can go through the history of this country and think about how people have been pushing back, fighting against oppression and fighting against, against racism, right? And environmental justice and social movement is just another um, stream in that river uh, human rights movement we have across the world, right? So, you know, the fight for reproductive justice, uh, LGBTQ rights, right? The, the, the immigrant rights, the, the fight for, um, you know, young girls, you know, the, our, our, our fight against big corporations, um, you know, our, our fight for voting rights, a fight for civil rights, uh, fight for women's rights. All these these fights are all connected. They're all part of this larger human rights fight, this human rights river, right? And so when I go back to the, if you go back in history, and again, Dr. King's uh, work with the sanitation workers, people came around signs, I am a man, and would say, recognize me, my humanity. All these fights are about recognize, recognizing each other's humanity. You know, how do we connect to each other? 
um, connecting across our differences? How do we bridge across difference, right? So this is an important point. When we think about how people who live in communities with environmental justice issues, they've been disproportionately impacted by environmental hazards and locally wanted land uses. So that could be chemical plants, uh, that could be petrochemical operations, uh, power plants, coal fire power plants, or gas fire power plants. You know, some of you may be familiar with Cancer Alley, the 80 mile corridor of petrochemical operations between Baton Rouge, New Orleans. That's an example of environmental injustice, right? You may be familiar with industrial chicken farming um, in, in um, Maryland, also Delaware. For those of you who go to Rehoboth Beach, my favorite beach, you're gonna drive by chicken farms. You know, you, you say, what's that smell? Well, you're smelling uh, uh, pollutants associated with chicken waste. Uh, you're, you're smelling uh, nitrogenous compounds. You're smelling ammonia. You know, that waste can run off into people's well water because most people who are in rural areas are on well water, right? That's an environmental issue. In North Carolina, we have industrial hog farms. A lot of work has been done about the disproportionate impact on industrial hog farms on poor communities and communities of color, right? So you can go from land use to land use to land use, right? And you see that communities of color, low wealth populations, Folks that don't have political power are disproportionately impacted by those hazards, and then they get disproportionately impacted by the pollutants associated with those hazards, and they have differential risk and differential health outcomes. Environmental injustice drives environmental health disparities, okay? So you think about these issues in this country and, and, and why it's so important to address racism, right? And why it's so important to, to address environmental justice. You see community uh, 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 to community in rural areas, in urban areas, you know, and this is brothers and sisters are dealing with, you know, mining issues, right? In the history of, of, of mining and, and mine tellings, right? And we think about even this pandemic with COVID-19. I actually like to, you know, slow down a little bit for y'all and say, we're not in a pandemic, we're in a syndemic. That's multiple pandemics. And the reason why I say that is if, think about the folks who've been impacted the most by COVID-19 pandemic. Nine of those 10 essential workers that gone out transportation workers, uh, folks who work in the hospitals, folks who work in the nursing homes, uh, folks who are doing restaurant work, folks who are doing service work, nine of those 10 workers are folks of color. So they're disproportionately impacted by COVID because they have to go into environments where they may have higher exposure, right? They may be in uh, close settings and you know, they have higher exposure risks. But COVID-19, this pandemic has made visible uh, the people that are policies that made invisible. Let's go back to indigenous brothers and sisters who live on reservations, for example. Even though in, in the US, more Native Americans live in urban areas now than reservations. That's, those Native Americans still live on reservations. Folks have said, well, you know what? You gotta wash your hands, okay? When it comes to hygiene, you know, I'm in public health. Wash your hands to reduce, you know, sort of the viral load, right, of, of, of SARS-CoV-2. Well, if you're not living on a reservation, you don't have access to running water. How are you gonna wash your hands if you don't have access to running water. That is a major environmental justice issue. The fact that folks globally don't have running water, people don't open defecation, right, in other parts of the world. Uh, that's a huge issue when it comes to wash issues, you know, hygiene, sanitation issues. That's an easy issue. But in the U.S. context, we still have folks who do not have sewer and water infrastructure. Go to Lowndes County, Alabama, where they're straight piping uh, waste out of their trailers, out of their homes, up to the ground. Go to Uniontown, Alabama. When you flush your toilet, your waste goes to a sewage treatment plant. In Uniontown, whose per capita income is around $12,000, when they flush their toilet, their waste goes to a containment pond. 
then they spray the waste on the ground, spray fields. So some of you in North Carolina, from North Carolina, no, but North Carolina, you know, hog waste gets sprayed on the ground, okay? They're doing the same thing in Uniontown. You look at the colonias on the border, you know, with, with you know, the Mexico border. You got folks who live in uh, settlements where they don't have sewer and water infrastructure. Our brothers and sisters who pick our fruits and vegetables, who are disproportionately, you know, immigrants, right? Coming from Central America, South America, right? They don't have access to water. You got post-slavery black neighborhoods. You know, you're talking about the, the you know winning freedom, the right to freedom, and being, you know, we just had the Juneteenth celebration, right? Folk, you had, think about it, the history of, of black folks in this country, you know, enslaved, freed. Then you have the Jim Crow, you, you know, uh, era. You had the whole, you know, the reconstruction, the pushback with Jim Crow. Now you got the new Jim Crow. I would say environmental injustice is the new Jim Crow. You got these post-slavery black neighborhoods in rural areas who do not have access to sewer and water infrastructure. You, you can go to Denmark, South Carolina, Mebane, North Carolina, you know, go back to Uniontown. So you got parts of our country in rural areas, and I'm talking a lot about this, but environmental injustice is just not an urban issue, it's a rural issue where folks don't have access to publicly regulated sewer and water infrastructure to base amenities. That is a major environmental justice issue. So when you think about these issues, you know, when you think about environmental injustice, you have, you, you have folks who live in communities that have limited power, right? Limited voice. So your economic power equates to your political power. And then also the cumulative impacts. Let me get into the science a little bit. So you got communities that are dealing with these multiple facilities, multiple hazards, right? Let's go to Baltimore, for example, Curtis Bay. Some of you mean about Curtis Bay, South Baltimore, where they have port activities, right? You know, the port goods come in. They have a, they had a coal uh, pile explosion, you know, coal that we burn explosion at a facility, CSX facility, several months ago. They have uh, train traffic that comes through, big truck traffic, right? And they have these super polluters. They're uh, emitting stuff to the air, water, and soil. So they've been exposed to the air, water, and soil. You can be exposed to inhalation, right? Ingestion, skin exposure too. And they've been exposed to multiple chemicals. So the cumulative impacts of multiple hazards, the cumulative impacts of being exposed to multiple chemical agents, right? Like mercury, uh, like particulate matter. Think about what is particulate matter? Let me just slow down a little bit for y'all. A lot of communities in urban areas that are disproportionate communities of color, you know, they have highways and byways that, that bisect and dissect their communities. This is part, partly due to the National Highway Defense Act of 1956, where on purpose, they built highways and byways through these communities. You know, Baltimore was the first city in the country that had racism-based zoning. It got thrown by Supreme Court. But why Baltimore has this his current kind of settlement pattern, social pattern, uh, um, you know, development pattern, is because of that. So these highways and byways were built through these communities. You can go to D.C., you go to Boston, go to any major city, folks of color disproportionately impacted by highways and byways. And so getting back to particular matter, why is that important? Particular matter, dust in the air is a combustion byproduct. When we combust fossil fuels, when we combust you know, gasoline, diesel, particular matter is one of those things that's produced. It is um, a criteria air pollutant. So the EPA measures particular matter, PM10, which is 10 microns. It's the big stuff, the stuff you sneezed out, the stuff you may see in your car, the stuff that's causing smog. And then PM 2.5, that's the small stuff. PM 2.5 is a very dangerous pollutant when it comes to public health. It can damage your alveoli. 
and your air, you know, your air sacs, right? So you live in a community with a lot of traffic coming through, a lot of bus depots, a lot of bus traffic, a lot of big truck traffic, construction work. You see people walking and biking by construction work. You see people walking and biking uh, by these highways and byways. You see kids walking to school. Well, when you expose a particular matter, it can cause asthma, asthma attacks. It can contribute to heart disease. It can cause strokes. It can contribute to diabetes and Alzheimer's, right? It can lead to infant mortality rates, higher infant mortality rates, uh, low birth weights, um, um, and birth defects. It can cause cancer. It can cause premature mortality. It can cause uh, reduced life expectancy. Now, what's important about that, and that's just one pollutant when you combust fossil fuels. You think about volatile compounds that are also produced. Y'all know VOCs, you may have air freshener, you smell that new car smell. I always tell people don't breathe that in because you may expose the VOCs. You go down to Houston, uh, Houston, uh, the I think the third or fourth largest uh, city in our in our country. You have the Houston Ship Channel. That's the North America's largest petrochemical corridor. When you fly into Houston and you and, and you're smelling that, what's that smell? You're smelling petrochemicals. You are smelling volatilic compounds. So communities, folks that live with uh, in, in communities with EJ issues, they're being impacted by multiple chemical stressors, chemical agents. They may be also impacted by multiple biological agents. Say you have poor housing stock, right? Mold, mildew, allergens, SARS-CoV-2, right? As I talked about before, I'm gonna get back to that term syndemic. And then they also may be exposed to multiple physical agents, uh, noise pollution, heat. You know, heat waves are hell for the poor and the elderly. In the state of Maryland, uh, Baltimore has more heat-related mortality events than any other, other city. Why is that? because of all the highways and byways, all the concrete and asphalt, uh, no tree canopy, right? There's a nature gap when it comes to uh, communities of color, low wealth communities. Communities of color, folks of color have three times less access to nature compared to their white counterparts. Uh, a low wealth populations have th uh, three times less access to nature compared to their wealthy counterparts. Why is it important? Trees are important to human health. Trees are good for shade, cooling, right? Trees are good for stormwater management. Trees are good for food, playability, mental health. If you don't have trees, it's hard to have a healthy community, right? So you think about the, not having trees and then folks who live in communities with EJ issues can also have a high concentration of psychosocial stressors. So chemical agents, right? Chemical stressors, biological stressors, physical stressors, and also uh, being exposed to psychosocial stressors. And then these communities that are you know, overburdened by hazards, the underserved uh, by infrastructure, right? You may have heard the term, uh, I just talked about nature, so this, this nature gap, but then some communities don't have access to food infrastructure. You may have heard the term food deserts of food swamps, right? But the, the system that leads to production of food deserts of food swamps, which are the symptoms of a larger problem, larger system of oppression, is food apartheid, right? So when I go back to this term syndemic, what do I mean by that? That communities experiencing multiple pandemics, the pandemic of racism since the founding of this country, right? You got the pandemic of economic uh, apartheid. Some folks who just can't, you know, make ends meet. The folks have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 have been those essential workers. Those essential workers are folks, in many cases, who may be poor and low wealth folks who have to go out and work. I'm not an essential worker. I'm on this computer right now. I'm, I, I'm not essential. So you got that. Then you got the pandemic of environmental injustice and you got the pandemic of climate change. You may not be believing in climate change, but climate change believes in you. And so you think about climate change as a pandemic, 
We know that we're all going to be impacted. We've been impacted by climate change now. We know we have a heat uh, wave uh, that's moving across the country. Remember the uh, Pacific heat dome blast where people died in Pacific Northwest. We know that sea level rise is real. We know that island uh, nations are, 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 are losing, uh, you know, their islands, right, because of sea level rise. We know the polar ice sheets are melting, right? This been, our world's been transformed because of anthropogenic, because of man-made actions, right? Look at tsunamis. Look what's happened in Haiti. Look, look at all these different impacts when it comes to hurricanes uh, and, and tsunamis. But also, you come back to the U.S. context, you know, Yes, there's different climate-related perturbations, right? Heat waves, sea level rise, forest fires, uh, hurricanes. You know, going back to, you know, hurricane issue in the Gulf Coast, there were more uh, hur named hurricanes that hit the Gulf Coast in the history of naming of hurricanes, right? Uh, I think seven named storms. And ironically, last year, Hurricane Ida hit New Orleans on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And why, why is it important to talk about climate change? You know, I would say that climate change is one of our biggest issues, but you cannot address climate change, adaptation, mitigation, resilience without addressing racism. Uh oh, Dartha wasn't talking about racism. Why is it important? Well, you look at extraction, you look at the fossil fuel continuum, right? Extraction of fossil fuels. Who's disproportionately impacted? Communities of color, low wealth populations. So mining, extraction, fracking sites, well pad. Transport, compressor stations, pipelines, who's disproportionately impacted, right? When you think about uh, refineries, who's disproportionately impacted? Where are refineries located at? When you think about combustion, I just talked about, you know, uh, highways and byways built, built through black and brown communities. Who's disproportionately impacted? Who lives uh, disproportionately near coal-fired power plants? Who lives disproportionately near gas-fired power plants? And who's dealing with the waste? So you got it to address climate change, adaptation, mitigation, resilience, and equity in that. You have to address environmental injustice. You have to address racism. There are folks who are going to be differently impacted by climate change. There are, you know, low-income folks, um, folks who may live closer to the hazards, who may live closer to the facilities, when there's flood events, when people are trying to escape through the toxic soup, whether it be Hurricane uh, 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 Katrina, Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Harvey, right? You have people who are going to be more vulnerable, children and elderly more susceptible, but people will be more vulnerable uh, during these events. Folks are more vulnerable during forest fires. We have to make sure we focus on the least of these. Those people are most vulnerable, like the Pope's encyclical, right, on climate change. His encyclical talks less about climate change and more about protecting poor people. We have to prioritize poor people. We have to prioritize low wealth people when it comes to addressing the issue of climate change, right? And our, when it comes to preparedness, when it comes to response, when it comes to recovery, we have to focus on equity, justice, and health when it comes to climate change. Now, I'm gonna shift a little bit and talk about how I try to address these issues of environmental justice. How I'm trying to address folks who have been impacted by this endemic. How I'm trying to make sure we eradicate environmental racism, environmental classism, environmental slavery in this country, right? And the way you do that, you got to engage the people who are most impacted. You know, the, the, at a meeting in 1991, the 17 principles of environmental justice were codified at the first People Color Summit. 
And those principles talk about, you know, sustainability, conservation, you know, human rights, uh, economic justice, et cetera. But they also talk about communities that most impacted speaking with their own voice. Communities that most impacted being at the table, right? You know, one of the definitions of environmental justice comes from the EPA that says that, you know, all people regardless of race, class, um, you know, religion, et cetera, uh, should be uh, fairly treated when it comes to implementation of environmental rules and regulations. And they should be fully engaged in decision-making processes. That is called recognitional justice, that those who most impacted, that their voices must be at the table to, to address these issues. And then if we're gonna address environmental slavery, right? We're gonna address environmental racism. We have to make sure we get to restorative justice. We got to restore communities. We got to make communities whole. We got to make people whole. We got to we got to bring that spirit into the work that we're doing. Antonovsky talks about you know uh, salute genesis promoting health, wellness, and well-being across all the business environment, the political environment, economic environment, social environment, physical environment, you know, uh, natural environment, in the spiritual environment, right? We got to make sure we have a cultural wellness model where we're bringing that spirit and connection to nature connection to each other, connection, like I said before, bridging across difference, okay? But in my work, what I try to do is engage those communities at the front line, fence line of environmental injustice and climate injustice. And I talk about doing empowerment science, I empowerment, you know, connecting people using science and scientific tools, connect people to the, the, the power that they already have. I was fooled by one of my community members that said, Jacoby, you can't give me power. Let me connect to the power that I already has, right? And I was like, okay, I got you. So how can I do that? By bringing science to the people. You know, I'm an academic. I work at the University of Maryland College Park, right? I'm an environmental health scientist. Academia, we have a tendency to do a lot of extractive science, helicopter science, you know, science where we study a problem, but not really take the problem solution. Communities that, most, that are impacted with environmental injustice, they don't need that type of science. That's, that's very colonial science, right? We got to decolonize science by making sure that anybody, everybody's a scientist. You don't have to have a PhD to be a scientist. You just have to use a scientific method, right? And it's unethical to do science. It's unethical to do science that doesn't focus on solving problems, okay? It's unethical to do science where you just focus on knowledge production. It's unethical to have a science enterprise that doesn't, where scientists don't look like the people who are most impacted. Academia, the, uh, uh, the, you know, our scientific sort of um, uh, enterprise in the U.S. is not that diverse. We got to bring in more diversity, equity, inclusion into the science that's being done. That's very, very important. You know, I speak on those issues as a member of the Citizen Science Association. Uh, I speak on those issues as, as a member of the National Academy of Sciences Board of Environmental Studies and Toxicology, right? I speak on these issues of DEI and science because I think that's the reason why we have a distrust, mistrust of science. Because a lot of the scientists don't look like the people most, most impacted by the issues. A lot of the science has been done is very extractive. It's just about problematizing. We need science, like Jesse Jackson would say, don't just problematize, solutionize. Jesse never said that, uh, but I'm just saying, you got to talk about um, act, action science, application science, solution science, change science, right? So I talk about doing empowerment science, I also talk about doing liberation science. How do we liberate people from environmental racism, environmental slavery, environmental justice, environmental classism, okay? Science can play a role in that, but science has to be transformed. The culture of science has to change. Those who are most impacted have to be at the table doing the science, right? 
And, and we do this in a number of ways, this empowerment science, this liberation science. I've been working with groups in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, low country alliance for model communities, LAMC, since about 2007, looking at issues around the port and goods movement. And they've been able to do some things to do revitalization, uh, try to push back on the port expansion, and again, empower their residents. I've been working with Kim Gaddy in the software neighborhood in, in Newark, New Jersey. You know, we're building a hyper-local air quality monitor network. Re remember, the cumulative impacts of these hazards and air pollution is a big issue communities of color, and Newark is experiencing that. They're working with the New Jersey DEP to do community science, right? Community-driven science. Science is other people, for the people, embodied people to get to solutions and actions. You've been working in Chevrolet, Maryland, helping to build a hyper-local air quality monitor network in Chevrolet to, again, collect data on pollution near warehouses and do the traffic. And we work with the Maryland Department of Environment to, to figure out ways to do an anti-island anti campaign. What, what I mean by that, there's a lot of big trucks that come through a lot of communities, right? And when you burn diesel and you're idling there, you're, you're spewing out a diesel exhaust that can impact human health. Short-term exposure to diesel exhaust can impact your concentration, coordination, and your focus. Uh, diesel exhaust also has some of the same health impacts that particular matter does, right? So we're working with them to do an anti-island campaign, uh, and that, I think that's been successful. We, we've done work in, in, in Buzzard Point in, in, D, in DC. We've done work in IBC in DC. I've done work on industrial chicken farms with community groups in, in the Eastern Shore of Maryland, done work on industrial uh, hog farms uh, with groups in, in, in um, North Carolina. Working right now on projects to look at disaster impacts in both Duplin County, North Carolina, and um, Charleston, South Carolina. And all this work is, is really uses community engagement structure, right? We want to build partnerships and build relationships and make sure we uplift community knowledge. We want to uplift cultural uh, analysis, right? The folks living in the community are contextual experts. They're the frontline, fence line scientists, okay? So that they have impact, we have to do that work to make sure that we're, we're, we're addressing these issues we have to make sure folks are at the table. Um, you know, I think in a lot of my work, you know, we have other partners. We have some new work that we're doing. Uh, we're engaging faith groups and we're, we're engaging, we're trying to engage the NWCP, National Urban League, engage a historic African-American fraternity sororities. The reason why I mentioned that as an example, we want to do research and that is action oriented and applied, but we want to engage the social infrastructure that are in these communities. That's a best practice. We want to activate the social infrastructure in these communities. That's the ethical way to do science, right? Uh, it's unethical just to helicopter in, right? And it's unethical to come in with a set of research questions that may not be relevant to that community. If you're going to address environmental justice issues, if you're going to make address climate change, if you're going to address big science issues, you got to break that open to bites. You got to make those issues everyday, proximal, in pocketbook, right? And you got to connect the research you're doing to the issues that are important to people. Food, faith, family, health, and jobs. Let me say it again. Food, faith, family, health, and jobs. That's how you make sure science is relevant and science is actionable. And you have more critical science literacy. You have more people who trust science and how you expand the number of scientists. That's how you get into STEM and get more youth connected to science. That's how we go address climate change because we're making it real for folks. Climate change is not happening later with the projections. People being dying from climate change right now. The biggest reason why you have so many uh, refugees 
folks have been displaced in this in this in this world right now is because of climate change. The reason we have so many brothers and sisters who are trying to come to America for jobs from Central South America is because of climate change. You see what climate change is doing across the world, right? We see floods, we see tsunamis, right? We see hurricanes, we see droughts, the drought in California. You see record-breaking forest fires in California and other parts of the world. We have to make sure we make climate change real to folks, not the later, it's the now, right? But it's not just a doom and gloom scenario in how we're gonna address climate change. Because people that, communities I work in, they're already dealing with doom and gloom, right? They are in survival mode. They're not thriving. They, some are thriving. They, they are you know, resilient to dealing with these decades and decades of being dumped on, decades and decades of being a sacrifice zone, decades and decades of dealing with environmental slavery where they don't get the, they, they internalize the externalities, right? But don't get any of the benefits of hosting the landfill, a host of the chemical plant, a host in the highway, right? They get all the bad stuff. So you want to make sure you get, you know, you maximize the benefits and minimize the impacts. When it comes to climate change, we have to create a climate economy, an economic opportunity structure. The way we're going to address environmental racism, the way we're going to address environmental injustice, we have to think about how we address inequality. Think about inflation right now, how inflation is impacting us, but think about how it's impacting low wealth people, right? Poor people. How can we create new, uh, new economic opportunity structures? Not just jobs, but, but making sure that their economy is justice focused, people centered, and restorative. Not build back better, right? That's not enough, right? It needs to be build back better, better, right? Not a word, but y'all get what I'm saying? It needs to be a form of reparations for folks. Think about the people who've been dumped on for decades upon decades and decades, right? And the generations of kids, for example, who've been impacted by lead, right? And we haven't fixed that. That's a major public health failure. That's a major environmental justice failure. You know, how you can put America first and put your kids first? Think about all the, 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 the President Obamas, the, the, you know, the future Einsteins, or whatever role model or somebody you look up to that we don't have now because neurocognitive impacts of lead on children in this country. Disproportionately, poor children, children of color. We have to do more. So we have to have an economy that's transformed, right? That's more eco-focused, right? That's more nature-based, that's more people-focused, that's more restorative and more justice-centered. And it has to engage our humanity. We have to bridge across difference and we have to work together to fight against this system of repression, both in the US and abroad. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Wilson for a um, very informative uh, and passionate uh, presentation this morning about the needs that we're facing and the intersection of a lot of different uh, challenges, including racial justice with environmental justice. I liked uh, when he said, um, you might not believe in climate change, but climate change believes in you. So um, we want to introduce the musical response, Troubles the Water by Leah Morris. Good morning, Wes. This song is called Troubles the Water. And like Kippen's shared this morning of My Baby Drinks Water, it was inspired by Standing Rock and Detroit. Some way, way back along. 
trouble